acknowledge that there's real problems here, and let's talk about this 800-pound gorilla in the room that's dangerous, ugly, and stinky. So you acknowledge it. It doesn't mean that you can get the gorilla actually out of the room, right? Uh, it doesn't imply that you can actually do anything about it. Maybe you can, and it's good to work with wisdom and so forth to solve problems in our lives, in our families, in our churches, in our world, in politics. But the fact of the matter is there are some gorillas you just can't get rid of, that you can't resolve, that you can't fix. Now, you might think, what in the world does 800-pound gorilla have to do with the Bible? Well, as I look at Psalm 73, it seems to me that the psalmist acknowledges this 800-pound gorilla in the room. Namely, um, bad people are getting the good life, and godly people are getting the hard life. That is, life seems unfair. Um, He doesn't feel the psalmist, this man of God who ends up with a jaded heart, feels that uh, he deserves more and perhaps implies that God owes him. You know, there are things like that in our lives where we just recognize, I, I don't know how to solve this issue. Um, I've acknowledged it, said, hey, here it is, it's right in the room. The problem, maybe it's a problem, a difficulty, a pain in, in marriage, or maybe it's uh, a work situation, or, or even looking at your own heart. Sometimes, okay, I got problems. I've acknowledged the gorilla in my heart. You know, like, like me, I, I'm one of those guys, or I, I, I'm almost every week reminded that I'm an impatient person. (laughs) My wife will tell you, and it bugs the heck out of her, that when we want to go on a trip, and we say we're going to leave at 9 o'clock, I want to leave right at 9 o'clock. And right around 8.50, I'm hovering all around. (laughs) Right around. She's just like, you know what? Just go into the other room because you're stressing me out because I am just an impatient person. But you know what? I look in there, and I'm like, gosh, Lord, I, mean, I know I need to be more patient, but it, it, it's like this gorilla I can't force out, right? Let's get out of here. I don't want to be patient. Man, my heart doesn't work that way. You know, all of us have those, those things. I have those, 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 those issues, either inside or outside, that just seem like you, no matter what you do, how hard you try, even just acknowledging that it's a problem, you just can't seem to do anything about it. Where do you go? You, you, you can deny it, again, pretend the elephant doesn't exist or the gorilla doesn't exist, or you can try and push it out with all of your might, but that doesn't mean you're going to get rid of it. And you can bounce back, before, back, back and forth between denying it exists or trying really hard, but if it's not something you resolve, you find yourself frustrated and find yourself angry and jaded. Well, here is this, if you will, this 800-pound gorilla in the psalmist's life. Life seems unfair. What do you do? Ignore it? You try and fix it? Ignore it, fix it? Because it doesn't work. We left the psalmist last week um, in a very frustrated position where he couldn't figure things out. Um, This is where we ended. After looking at life and seeing the disparity and the unfairness of how people are treated, the, the bad people getting the good life and the godly people getting the hard life. Um, this is where we leave him. He says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a worrisome task. It's just, it just drug me down. 
like trying to figure out contemporary American politics, just drags you down, right? Or Venus trying to figure out Mars, and Mars trying to figure out Venus. It's like, it's just a worrisome task. I can't figure out, he says, God, I can't figure out life. That's where we left, left him. He can't fix it. But then beginning in verse, no, notice that the end of that verse, verse 16, it ends in a comma, not a period. So after he says, but when I thought how to understand this, to understand, get my head around it, resolve it in my thinking, it seemed to me a wearisome task until. What an amazing word. Um, because it marks a turning point. It marks the shift. It marks a renewal. It marks the beginning of a new perspective on life. It's a, it's a, it's a if you will, a way out. Not between ignorance or ignoring something, a problem, and trying to fix it yourself, which you can't do in many cases. There is this third way, and it comes after this word, until. Something happens. Something happens, and this is what he experiences. And we're going to spend almost all of our time on the first part of verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God... Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. Then them, he's referring about um, the ungodly, wicked people who are prospering. Um, Truly, you have set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Uh, Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. The turning point is that he goes into the temple or goes into the tabernacle. He goes into the place of worship. He goes into the place where God um, had decreed that his name would be known and his presence would be manifested or, 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 or um, displayed for his people. The temple, the place of worship, the presence of the Lord. Well, the question for me and, and I think for us is like, that, that, that's the turning point, but we're only given... Like half a sentence. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Well, what what happened in the sanctuary of God? That he would experience such a renewal and a turnaround that will lead him into the heights of of affirming that there's nothing better than God in the entire universe. What happens in the sanctuary? That's what I wanted to explore with you. Now, in one sense, you could answer the question, well, he worshiped. That would be the end of the sermon, Hey, yeah, well, what happened in the sanctuary? We worshiped, and that's the key to everything, just worship God. Well, yeah, in one sense, that's true. Worship, properly defined, not as simply an experience with singing, but a whole life response to God revealed. That's worship. Um, I'd like to break it down a little bit more um, for us. This whole idea of the sanctuary of God. Because the sanctuary or the temple, as God designed it and delivered it to his people, God was very specific on how it was to be built, how many rooms it was to have, how much and what the furniture looked like. In other words, God was the one who architected this this ancient symbol of worship. And that ancient symbol of worship, that ancient place of worship, the, the tabernacle or temple, 
um, was meant to communicate certain things to God's people about himself. All right? Um, And one of those things that the temple was to the people was it was a place of revelation, a place where God revealed himself, a place where people could um, sense and see and hear what Yahweh is like. Um, think about it for a moment. I'm going to just have to draw on your memory of the Old Testament. And if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, well, um, you can fill it in on the, on the backside um, through some reading or so, and so forth. But, I mean, the temple of God was the place where God's own words were kept, like inscribed on stone. God's own revelation were kept. Uh, it's a place where Solomon would later say, this is a place in which the name of the Lord has been placed and the name of the Lord will go out, the knowledge of the Lord will go out to the ends of the earth from this place. In other words, it was a, it was a place where God revealed himself to his people. And not just in words, but also in the embodiment of the temple itself. I mean, it was designed to communicate. So you would walk in or you'd see it from the outside and you would sense the grandeur of, of, of the Lord. I don't know if you've ever walked into a European cathedral, but man, it's awesome. Like you can sense just from the sheer architecture and space that whoever's worshipped in here is, is awesome. Not these, you know, strip mall churches or even like this. It's nothing <laughs> compared to those things. Well, the temple was designed with grandeur and with gold. And, and at the same time, every little piece revealed something about the Lord. Like most temples... Pagan temples had images or they had statues in them. But, but ironically, in the Jewish temple, there were, no, there were no images of created things. There was just an empty seat called the mercy seat with two cherubim um, representing the throne of God, the invisible, um, irreducible God, communicating to God's people, even though they couldn't see it, that God reigns. And he reigns in mercy or seeing the temple veil and recognize God is so utterly holy that we can't even be near him apart from sacrifice. Or to see the table of showbread and be reminded our God is the God who provides for us. Or to see the candelabra or the menorah this, this, that gives light, a reminder that God is not only the source of light, he is light. Like, like the whole thing communicated. It was the embodiment of, of who God is. Like you walk in and you get a sense of, of himself. You know, jo- this is a, I didn't have this in my notes, but Josephus wrote about the temple. Um, and he said that then on, the, on the veil, there were, um, there were woven in uh, things that would communicate the universe. The idea being that the God Yahweh behind this veil rules heavens and the earth. That's all supposed to communicate, right? One of the things that he would have experienced, Asaph, is a reminder as he came into the temple of who Yahweh is. And one of the, if you, if, if the first step towards any renewal or refreshment or um, being healed from a jaded, cynical, angry, frustrated, um, strangled heart is to come back into the open and recognize who God is. Just to, 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 to sense the grandeur of, of God revealed. My favorite place, my favorite sanctuary is not a cathedral. To go out in the middle of the night, look at the stars. And I remember, you know, if, if, you, if you know the name of that star and that star, like Isaiah said, you know, when he says calling them all by name, 
and you hold them in place, and you determine their beginning and the end, then you've got my life, right? He went into the temple, a place of revelation. It's not only a place of revelation, but a place of redemption, right? I don't have to spend a whole lot of time on this, but the very fact that there was a temple uh, told God's people that he determined and desired to be with them. The fact that he sits on a seat of mercy where atonement would be made every year, a reminder that there is a covering for sin. There is a way in which we can relate to the Lord, and it has to do with the price of, 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 of blood. We're, uh, <laughs> we live, live in a very pet-friendly culture, right? Where, in many cases, pets are treated probably better than human beings. Um, you go to the store and you buy a piece of meat, you don't think about what happened to that to get it to that point, Right? Because we don't like the idea of death or death of animals. Um, But, you know, the temple sacrifices that signified atonement, they were brutal and they were violent. They were bloody. Um, 1 Kings 8 tells us that Solomon, he offered 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. SPCA would not be happy with Solomon. You might think, wow, that's, that's horrible. That's like repulsive to the 21st century American pet-friendly culture. Uh, yeah, well, you know what? That's the price of sin. And you know what? You could take all the animals in the world, you could round them up, and you could slaughter every last one of them. And you know what? At the end of the day, it still wouldn't atone. But it was a constant reminder of this blood flowing in which an animal is sacrificed in place of a man, uh, uh, it, was a, it was a reminder of, of atonement. It was the whole system itself, the fact that God even implemented a system by which man could, sinful man could approach is itself a mercy. The whole thing screams redemption and created an anticipation that at some point God is going to provide what man can't provide and what no animal could pay, and that is atonement. So... Uh, You've come to this place, Asaph, it's a place of God's revelation. It is a place of redemption where God takes a, a sinner like me and, and brings him close and allows me to fellowship with him and, and in a figurative way share a table with him. And then the third thing is the temple would be, again, until I went into the sanctuary of God. The sanctuary, a place of revelation, a place of redemption. It's also, it was designed to be um, a preview. You walk into the temple, the whole thing was designed to be a preview of what's to come. Um, I I prefer, and this this sounds way too theological, but I prefer the word eschaton. Uh, um, If you're a theology student, you learn eschatology, which is the study of the end or study of the future, you know. Ironically enough, there is this village for, um, it's a nursing home. It's called the Eschaton Village up in Carmichael. If you really knew what the Greek word meant, you probably wouldn't want to live there because it means this is your last home, right? <laughs> it's the end. That's what it means, Eschaton. Well, the temple just, it, it, the whole thing screamed forward. Like, it's, it's a little mini picture of what's to come. Now, what do I mean by that? Uh, the whole thing was designed with... Eden-like structures, Garden of Eden-like structures. There were, there were flowers and symbols of fruit trees and all of it a reminder that 
We once came from the, the true sanctuary, right? Where man and God dwelt in a perfect place and man worshiped God without hindrance, without veils, without sacrifice. There was none of that because it wasn't needed. There was no sin. And so when, when God grafted that into the idea of Eden and fruit and flowers into this, this sanctuary, he was telling his people, listen, I'm taking you back there sometime. Like, this is where it's all going. The future. At some point, this veil's going to come down, and, and you and I, we're going to be together again. That's, the whole thing screams future. It screams new creation. It screams heaven. It screams the new Eden. That's the, the, the positive aspect of the, the preview. The negative aspect is you, you recognize because sin entered the world, the temple was always a place where two things kind of collided. Life and death. I mean, the, the death of an animal signified your continued life because it gave its life. So it's death and life, curse and blessing, side by side. And you can't help but see, man, in order for me to be with you, God, and you to be with me, something has to die, which means something has to be judged. Something has to be terminated. Something has to be killed. Something has to be condemned. That is a sense of the future. It is a small foretaste of judgment to come in which God will judge the living and the dead because the sacrifices spell it out, blood everywhere. And I think that last piece was part of his realization and the shift in perspective so that he could say, at the second part of verse 17, then I discerned their end. He's, he's now realizing that there's a much bigger story. That there is actually an eschaton. There is a last day in which the wicked who, wicked who prosper in this life are going to be held accountable for everything that they do. They are going to be judged. I discerned their end. They may prosper for a while like a, like a vapor of air. Things may seem unfair for a moment. You may not get what you think you deserve in this life. But, you know, the fact of the matter is, he says right here, there's an end coming. You've set them in slippery places. They're like on the edge of a cliff with ice under their feet. At any moment, they could be gone. And, and, and their prosperity goes with them. Or like a dream, it's like a dream or a phantom. When God um, rousts himself, it's a picture of judgment. When like God gets up off of his throne and says, now is the time. Part of the perspective that we have to have as believers is we have to see life from the end of the story perspective. You can't just live in the present tense. Otherwise, things are going to seem unfair. They're going to seem Dull. They are going to seem disappointing and discouraging, but wait a second. What's the end of the story? Life, resurrection, perfection, relationship, love, all of those. That's the end of the story. And judgment at the same time. You know, we, we think of judgment as a negative thing, 
Um, but you know, uh, there's a psalm that says, that, you know, let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice because the Lord is coming to judge with equity. In other words, he's going to resolve the issue. He specializes in 800-pound gorillas. We have to see part of the way out is you have to see life from the end of the story when you realize that because of the end of the story, and it, it brings so much comfort. And I, I don't know if God did a spoiler for us, you know, by telling us how things turn out. It's not a spoiler, right? It's an incentive. It's supposed to t- teach us and tell us, you know, I got this whole thing figured out. And you know what? You end up in a good place. So you know what? Trust me with it. I'll work it out. You have to see life from that perspective. So that's... When he says, I went into the sanctuary of God, he was confronted by the revelation of who God was. He was confronted by the fact that God is a redeeming God. And he was confronted by the fact that God owns the end of the story, and it's a good story. It ends in judgment for those who don't believe and salvation for those who do. Now, how are we supposed to? I was like, hey, man, how do you translate this into into the 21st century, we have no temple. And this church building is not a temple. It's not even a sanctuary, technically. Christians have resisted using the word temple to describe churches because there is only one temple. And it's not made with stone. You know, Jesus, when he came, I'm transposing this from Old Testament to New Testament. When Jesus came in the Gospel of John, um, he was explicit over and over and over again that everything foreshadowed in the Old Testament found its fulfillment and its substance in himself. And so when he said in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verse 19, many of us just pass over this, just read it, and Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now he's talking about it. Him himself. It's like basically kill me. Kill the temple. You're like big deal. That word cannot be diminished or, or underemphasized or overemphasized. Because in the Gospel of John, Jesus sees himself as not only just the fulfillment, but also the, the, the final replacement of. So he sees, describes himself not as a shepherd. He says, I am the shepherd. He tells us, uh, I am not a light like John the Baptist. I am the light of the world. I'm not just the vine from which people draw life. I am the vine. And when he describes himself here as I am, destroy this temple. It's like, I am. I am what the temple represented that place was built with, 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 with human hands and with, with rocks and, and gold. I am everything it signified. When you think about it, it makes complete and perfect sense because Jesus is not a revelation of God. He is the revelation of God, right? The word made flesh has come to dwell among us. He is the most perfect, explicit a representation, revelation, display of who God is that you'll ever have. Temple can't compare to Christ. That he is not just 
a redeeming means. He is the redeeming means. He's, he is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. No more blood of animals. There was just one life needed, and it was his. He is redemption. And he is the perfect picture and expression of what's to come. His life, in particular, his death and resurrection. Right? In those two things, you see the horror of the judgment to come, condemnation, wrath, and anger poured out on the one instead of the many, which is a rather terrifying little peak of what's to come on planet Earth. It's a, it's a little preview. No, it's a big preview, actually. Or resurrection. I mean, the coming to life. Back to physical, spiritual, perfected, glorified life. That's, that's, that's our hope. You see, he is the picture of our future. He is our future. So when we, 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 we to me, what it means, verse 17, when it says, and then I went into the sanctuary of God. The sanctuary we come into, church, is not a building. It's in the person and work of Christ, through whom God revealed himself, through whom God has redeemed us, and in whom God gives us the end of the story. He is our temple. So, so again, if we find ourselves in this place where, where, we, where, where we are melted down emotionally, inwardly, our attitudes are cynical because we've lost our way and we're looking too much at the present tense. Where do we go? Well, we gather together and we talk about, sing about, declare, read about, as Tom says, declare the gospel to ourselves. We, we remind ourselves of, of who God is for us in Christ. Um, what he's done to make us his own, and to remember where we're headed into the future. That's, we gather in him. We, we come to him. And what, is, what does 2 Corinthians 4 say? It says that, that the glory of God shines in its fullness through Christ. Right? So when we come, we're supposed to, I mean, how else do you, do, 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 do you find your heart, jaded heart healed? Well, you come back into the fullness of who Christ is for you. That's, that's the simple, simple answer, right? Um, to be reminded when you're, when you're feeling like God doesn't notice you or he doesn't care about your specific situation, to be reminded that, yeah, that's right, God is, God, God is who Jesus is. Jesus represents and shows and reveals who God is and Man, I remember that story in the Gospel of Mark in which there was this man called Blind Bartimaeus. He was sitting on the side of the road in Jericho, and he, he, was, he was screaming at the top of his lungs as Jesus walked by in a caravan. And he was screaming at the top of his lungs, Have mercy on me, son of David. And everybody was saying, Shut up! He doesn't have time for you. You're too much of a beggar, too much of an invaluable, unworthy person for the king of kings to stop and take notice of. And yet, the gospel of Mark says that Jesus stopped. And he went over to the man. That's, that's him to you. Like, that's him to me. That's our father. It's like he hears your cry. He knows about the particulars of your life. And that's, 
God revealed in Christ or to recognize at the same time, all right, you know what? Jesus is in charge. All authority has been granted to him. And therefore, you know what? The next president of the United States has already been determined. And whoever it may be, may be an expression of either blessing or judgment. Or, I'm not going to finish that sentence. (laughs) But, to be reminded that we are citizens of his kingdom. Therefore, we have nothing to fear. Right? That's coming into all that Christ is for us and finding our hearts renewed and refreshed, not by staring at the world and its inequities, but by, by, by declaring and soaking in all that God has revealed to us through his son and that we matter because he is our redeemer and we're going someplace awesome. So listen, I'm just going to ask you, I'm point blank here, if you're a jaded person, I'm, your Christian heart has just been darkened. I just want to ask you, there's only one way out of this. You can ignore it, you can try and fix it yourself, or you can do the third way, and this is the only way out of it. Come back to Christ. Come back to Christ. No justifications. Don't try and control it. No ifs, ands, or buts. Just say, all right, Lord, um, the world is in your hands, and um, I just want to worship you. That's, that's the only way out. I want to encourage you. It sounds weird talking to Christians, but come back to Christ. <laughs> come back to Christ, right? Lord, um, you know these people, they are your, your personal prized possessions, and um, you want what's best for them, and and, uh, and I, I pray that in the, in the power of your spirit, you would work in, in us, every one of us. Um, if we're not jaded, maybe we're just bored. Maybe we're indifferent. And I pray you'd break that, break that apart. Just allow new life to come in. New breath, new wonder, new marvel, new joy, new excitement, sense of adventure. Because, Lord, you're the, I mean, you're the captain of the ship, and we, we want to trust you. So help us to do that. Help those who are far to draw near to Christ. Amen.